0: What is up everyone and welcome into the Modern Drummer Podcast. I'm Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com and my co-host is Mr. Mike Dawson. He's the managing editor of Modern Drummer Magazine and he'll be joining us shortly. In this week's episode we're going to discuss creativity. Where do Mike and I get our inspiration from for being creative and most importantly how do you practice being creative? We'll talk about my recent trip to Germany where I got a chance to visit the Meinl factory. I did clinics in Berlin, Munich, Munich. Got a chance to hang out with vinyl artist Annika Nils, talk to her about her recent rise to drum fame. And in our gear review section, Mike Dawson reviews DW's new Cherrywood Jazz Series Drum Kit. So let's get started. Our main topic today is creativity, and you and I are, you know, we've known each other for quite a while, and I've always looked at you as somebody that is very creative on the instrument, and... Even some of the drummers you follow, I know some of your influences, and I know that, you know, when I think of them, I'm immediately thinking of creativity. Practicing creativity can be tough, guys. So if you're thinking about sitting down on the drum set and, th- and thinking, "Okay, I'm going to be creative right now," I mean, what do you do? Like, how do you even start that? And I think there's ways. If you're a creative person, you don't even have to ask yourself this question, maybe because you just sit down and you are creative, but. Some people like myself are not creative whatsoever. Uh, when you see a website that I've done or if you see a picture that I put up on you know, social media or if you see a drum solo, there's so much thought that went behind it. It's not ins- instantaneous creativity at all or spontaneous creativity by any means. And one of the things that I do to start the creative juices flowing is I'll, I'll try to find influence in other drummers in a video and I'm, I'm looking for a spark. I'm looking for a key rhythm. I'm looking for a melodic phrase or just something to start me on the drum set to see if I can begin a journey or maybe even a category. So I'll say, okay, I'm going to try to be creative in nonlinear triplets, or I'm going to be try to be as creative as I can transitioning between uh, 16th notes and 8th note triplets and stuff like that. So Mike, do you have anything... Specifically for yourself that gets you kind of in the flow of practicing creativity?
1: Yeah, I had a, you know, I, I came up doing a lot of method books and stuff. So I kind of had a, a little bit of a roadblock early on with this as well. But then in college, I was doing a lot of improvised music. And there were a couple things in that. One was one of the ensembles was I wasn't allowed to play drum set. I had to just pick instruments and play them. And it was all improvised, and so my ride cymbal would be a gong, <laughs> my bass drum would be like a like a hand drum on its side. So I was playing more like like classical percussion instruments, and it was all just free improvisation. There was no no written music whatsoever, and I had to be convincing. So I let, and I did that every semester for three years, and it was a qu- it was a quartet. It was a trombone, cello, bass, and drums, (laughs) upright bass and drums. Oh man. So that, that just being in that situation was like, all right, I can't, I can't play any licks. I can't play grooves per se. I have to just play textures. So that learned, I learned kind of dynamic and textures kind of creates the story in that situation. So whenever I'm feeling not creative, I'll just explore like
0: sounds. That's a really good point. Like, I mean, the, when you change anything on your drum set, I can remember being a kid and, and just getting a splash cymbal, and then a million new ideas were coming to me because of this new sound that was on my drum set, getting my first cowbell. All of a sudden, it was a brand new drum set. Kick, snare, hats, ride, everything was the same, but I added a cowbell, and that was a new instrument, and the creativity was really flowing. And right now, I mean, you and I were talking about it a little bit ago, but I just got uh, a new kit from Gretsch. I got the Broadcaster, and it's such a different animal than any of my other Gretsch kits, and it's in different sizes that aren't my normal sizes. I got uh, 20 by 14 kick, 12 by 8 rack tom, 14 by 14 floor tom, and 14 by 5 snare, and I'm playing so different right now because the drum set won't play the way that I normally play, and so I have to slow the tempos down, play with more space, give every note it's its own thing. And, and to me, creativity is not about playing as many notes as you can. It's as, it's being creative and getting outside of your comfort zone. And yeah, a new instrument or something like the extreme, what you did, will really help. But I think one thing that our our kind of listeners should try is arranging your drum set in a different way. Get rid of your rack toms for a day and, and have your ride cymbal right in the middle of the bass drum and just see what that does. Uh, Pete Magadini actually on my very first tour in my um, signed rock band and Simon says uh, I had just started private lessons with Pete Magadini and he said okay uh, I told him I said okay I'm going out for six months and then I'll be back to resume lessons and he said okay you can only take kick snare crash and ride and I was like excuse me like no 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 like we just recorded an album that has like like bridges that are all tribal Tom, you know, rage against the corn tones, Tom grooves. And he said, well, you can't, you can barely, you know, you're not great at kick, snare and hi hats. Why would you think that adding all these drums is going to make you any better? So Pete had me take out just kick, snare, hats, crash and ride. The band got used to it. Everything was fine. And then when I came home and I played for him a little bit, then he said, okay, now you can take out a floor Tom. And that floor Tom was just, it was heaven and I, I used it you know in a very creative way. So I think changing your setup can really help your creativity um, and you know when you said when you talked about what you went through Mike it immediately made me think yeah every time I change my setup, my playing changes a little bit so it's something that's really good to do.
1: Yeah I mean sound for me is everything so whatever I hear makes me play completely differently. Like I, I went through a phase when I couldn't play uh, a, a normal sounding drum set. It had to be completely open, high tuned. So when I'd be in, in college and I'd go to the practice room and the kit would be like, like an R- R&B sounding kit, it's like, I can't, I can't play this because I'm not getting enough sustain. I'm not getting enough tone to work with. It's just all attack. Right. And, and at that moment, I wasn't really into that type of playing. I was into bebop and things like that. So for me, sound is, is if I want to be creative, I have to have good sounds. Gotcha.
0: That's really important. Inspiring sounds. Speaking of inspiring sounds, where do you get your inspiration from? Like, if you felt like you weren't being very creative, where would you go to kind of inspire yourself to work on your creativity? It depends. I mean,
1: musically, I'd probably go back to some of my, just the the guys that I love the way they play, Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, Philly Joe Jones. And I just play along to their records until, until I find something in their vocabulary that I, that, makes me want to practice it. And then that just sparks a whole session of, all right, here's that. Here's the way Philito Jones plays the, the four-stroke rough. Now let me just mess with that in different tempos, different styles, different orchestrations. And eventually I kind of come up with something. I'm like, oh, that's, that's kind of mine. I can take that Elvin lick and, and turn it into sixteenth notes and it kind of becomes mine. And, and then I used to have this three-part process. I would ex- I'll call it ex- exploration. And then I would create a practice session out of that. So the exploration was just playing along the records and just having fun and then wait until I find that spark, you know? So then then when I hit that, I'm like, I need to figure out a way to practice that. And then once I practice it, I would go into a composition mode. So I would always like to end my session with, let me compose at least a a
0: 16-bar piece using this concept. That's really cool, man. That's That's... I think every time we talk and I hear more about your history as a drummer, I learn a new way that I could either myself approach something or I could pass on to my students, you know, because sometimes when you're teaching – you're teaching something and and you're thinking, okay, well, I'm teaching you the way that I was taught or the way that I learned and I'm hoping it works for you. And sometimes for the students, it just doesn't work and it's not clicking. And you have to have the ability as an instructor to say, okay, think of it like this. And then when that doesn't work, you say, you know what? Let's try something different. And so I think that that's something I've never thought of, you know, putting on an album of their favorite drummer and say, all right, close your eyes, man. You know, we're going to listen to your favorite band until you find something that you just go like that right there. I wish I could do that. What is that? And it's like, all right, let's make a plan out of that. Let's explore that. And then instead of just learning that lick or that chop, let's make an entire, you know, subject matter out of what made that chop possible and try to be as creative as we can so that you have your own vocabulary out of what, you know, inspired you in the first place.
1: Yeah, that's the goal. And then. Be outside of music, I would. I always look to art because I I don't feel like I am very visually artistic, so I try to. I am trying to learn it, so I am always looking at at modern art books. I am reading the Salvador Dali bio right now because surrealism just fascinates me. So I am kind of stuck in this idea of how can I make the drum set surreal? What what can I do to be a surrealist drummer? Because what's a surrealist? Well, they're hyper detailed and very realistic but there's something about it that is completely unrealistic. So how do you do that on the drum set? Maybe I try to get the most pristine, steely Dan-sounding drum sound, but I use an 8-inch snare drum, or I use a huge snare drum and like detune it and put tons of weird effects on it or something. Something that would make it
0: surreal. I'm not sure yet. I'm still exploring that idea. But Wow, man. So I think we just figured it, because I'm thinking like, okay, I did not know that about you, but now knowing something other than drums that you're really into. And then if we, you know, the things that I'm really into couldn't be more opposite. I'm I'm into astrophysics and astronomy. And I was really bummed that when I was in Germany this last couple of weeks, I wasn't able to get to the uh, Museum of Mathematics in Gießen and then it, but it's like that's how my drumming is it's very like okay let's figure out the process let's dissect it note for note it's not that i don't want to be creative i really do it's just not there in my blood and even now when i look at like your outside interests and my outside interests it's kind of it, it's it's in tune with our drumming so the drumming is kind of a reflection of who we are as people
1: yeah and i think if you want to do something that's not comfortable you have to just go for it like, I, I can't say that I really like modern art, like abstract art, but I'm, I'm fascinated by that, by the fact that I don't get it. And with, like, songwriting lyrics, I'm fascinated with the fact that I cannot write lyrics. <laughs> so, I, so when I hear, like, a, a modern country song where the story is so straightforward and, and so awesome at the same time, I'm like, I need to figure out how to do that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I used to, I used to just pour over Mike Patton's lyrics, uh, from faith no more. I was like, God, I just want to know this man. And then I got to spend time. Uh, I was out in, uh, in Europe doing festivals in my twenties and Mr. Bungle was on like probably six of our shows in a row. And just getting to talk to that guy was, I was like, man, your lyrics make a lot of sense now. (laughs) Now I know from, you know, talks that we've had in the past that you're really, really a huge fan of, is it Glenn from Wilco? Oh, yeah. Glenn Kochi would probably be, when you're talking creativity, he's my number
1: one. Absolutely. I mean, I saw him at, at PASIC, his first PASIC, I don't know, it was probably six years ago at this point. He played, he debuted his Monkey Chant, which is his, his solo drum set piece based on an ancient story of this battle of a king and his army and all this. So he, he assigned all the characters in this this, I think it's an opera, actually this this opera, and he assigned all the characters with different sounds on his kit, and he had springs on his snare drum, and he had a lion's roar attached to his snare drum, and all, he had a, a thumb piano with grip tape on it so he could scratch it.
0: And that's is that the same thing he did at the Modern Drummer Festival, right? It
1: is. It is. So he did that the year before, I think, at PASIC, and that was one of those moments where like, I couldn't help but jump out of my seat at the end of it like, holy cow, that's the most creative, most amazing drum solo I've ever heard. I don't ever want to hear a six-stroke roll again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so awesome. And it transfers into what he does with Woco.
0: Yeah, man, like, you know, I think for me, the first time that I really, I don't know, was kind of amazed by creativity was uh, the stuff that Matt Chamberlain was doing. Uh, you know, I'm a huge Matt Chamberlain fan, but... I remember the Critter's Bug and stuff, and definitely some early Fiona Apple, early Tori Amos. um, I couldn't figure out what was percussion and what was drum set. They were blending so well together. And since I didn't have an extensive percussion background at the time, I really had to be creative to get my snare to sound like, you know, a snare with a hand clap with some shakers on it. You know, I mean, there's so much. So I think other drummers... Especially, I think creativity really, I think, would be better helped by listening rather than seeing. If you could see what Glenn is doing or you could see what Matt Chamberlain is doing, you just copy it. But if you just listen to the albums and just close your eyes, you have to be creative and think, how the heck am I going to get my drums to sound like that? Yeah, Matt is also
1: way up on there. Joey Wonker is another one for me, where he his stuff he does with Beck and and his own projects, uh, it's seamless. And it's the same thing. Like... He, it sounds like there's a shaker in a drum set, but he's actually playing the shaker and the drum set at the same time. Or it doesn't sound like there's... You don't even notice that there's drums at all on the track. But when you really start listening, you're like, oh my gosh, that's some of the most amazing musical drumming I've ever heard. But, but he has nothing to call attention to
0: himself. And the industry has totally supported that now. I mean, we have so many things, little jingle rings to put on your snare. I mean, Sabian has that thing for JoJo, and Mark Giuliani uses that. Um Minel has like a jingle ring that goes on top of your existing cymbal or on your hi-hat. Um, I know that different companies have come out with like shakers that attach to your drumstick. You know, um, I remember seeing, uh, do you know uh, Zach Hill from Hella? Yeah, he was on my list of, of creative people. So Zach's here in SAC and, and we did lessons. I taught his little brother for a long time. Then we did a lesson together and I told him, dude, please don't ever sign up for a lesson with anyone ever again because I don't want anyone to straighten you out. Uh, this is when he was a kid. And um, and so, you know, but Zach was like one of those first people that I saw just playing, like bashing his ride cymbal with maracas. And I was like, wow, I never thought to use maracas as my sticks. He had those kind of LP plastic maracas and he was bashing his ride with it and it was awesome, you know. And he kind of defined the the stack trash sound for me.
1: Before him, I never heard really heard anybody do it. I mean, Weckle kind of did a couple stacks, but but Zach was like, "I'm going to put all the
0: junk I've got in one pile and then hit it really hard." <laughs> and Zach, I mean, you know, like I said, we've been, you know, I haven't seen him in years, but we kind of grew up together. Uh, his band was called Legs on Earth, and they were very primacy in the early '90s. Then uh, my band was kind of just a, a little more heavy, but we grew up playing together all the time with Abe from the Deftones and Chris Robine from Far. And Dave Buckner from Papa Roach were all in the same town, and you know Zach was that one that I I just no matter when he was playing, I wanted to watch him play. But he really he's not he's he's not trying to be creative. He can't help it. That's just who he is as a human, you know. And it's awesome to sit back and just really experience the difference between normal human, you know, some business savvy, some kind of social skills, and then the complete switch into artist and you get that word, that word artist. And you're like, okay, this is an artist and it's in every fiber of their being. So Zach Hill definitely, um, you know, and just listen to what he did with team sleep. If you guys haven't heard team sleep, that's Chino Moreno from Deftones. That's his side project or one of them besides crosses and some other things, but check out team sleeps first album and listen to Zach Hill. Um, and then if you really want to go bananas with the creativity, if you want to hear kind of the pre, Animals as Leaders, the pre-periphery. Listen to Hella. It's a du- uh, duo, just guitars and drums. And Zach is a monster in that band. Yeah, and they put out a, a really nice tour DVD
1: that kind of shows all the the craziness and the ama- amazing life that they lived on the road. And just to see Zach, I mean, he he he's like a monk. He he he's yeah. devoted his entire soul to playing the drums the most honest way that he can. Yep. So he's he's broken his foot from playing, trying to play the bass drum
0: too too fast and too hard. Yep. He's busted knuckles. I mean, it's unreal. And like you have to keep in mind once you guys hear Hella, this will make more sense to you. But Sacramento is not San Francisco. Sacramento is not Manhattan. So um, once you hear this music, then imagine that happening in the coffee shops around here in Sacramento, in a small town, and it was. <laughs> Dude, it was not accepted well, and they couldn't care less, man. You tell them to turn down, they just turn up louder. It was just incredible. It was a, it was a good time here. On the New York side, I would say
1: creativity is is heavily in the downtown scene with Zach Danziger and Mark Juliana and Jim Black is a guy I think who doesn't get a whole lot of credit. Okay. He's kind of like the 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 downtown New York jazz version of Zach Hill. Mm. Just no holds barred, no sacrifices. And then another guy, Dan Weiss, who's—they're all kind of coming out of the same school. He, Dan is is the first person I've heard play tabla language on the drum set for real, like not not just playing the syllables and hitting drums, but he's he's actually playing entire pieces, like legitimate tabla pieces on drum set. And he's also a great tabla player. He's a great jazz drummer, so he's he's way up there for creativity. He's the guy that did. Did you see the video of? of, of a uh, auctioneer, yeah,
0: yeah, and and he he transcribed the auctioneer yeah. note for note. Yeah. yeah, that's Dan Weiss. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, actually, I think he I think he sent that to me, like, hey, what do you think of this? And I was like, I have no idea what to think of this. This is, you know, getting back to the creative thing. It's like this is so creative. I don't even know how to handle this. Um, you know, uh, that that stuff blows me away. We had uh, Yoast Nickel here. If you guys haven't seen Yoast yet, please check him out. But Somebody made an entire, he played a drum solo, just a freeform drum solo um, for his live broadcast when he was here. And then somebody made a guitar solo to his drum solo. They made, his, his drum solo was so musical that they were able to note for note play his drum solo on guitar. And it was like seven minutes long. It was just like, whoa, I'll send you the link later. <laughs> so, all right, let's move on.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we have to talk about you going over to Germany. What was the point of it?
0: There was, it, you know, it started actually with a drum camp. So it, it had nothing to do with clinics, had nothing to do with Minol or anything like that. It started with somebody contacting me, actually one of our online students, and he had done Benny's Camp, um, or one, I think he'd been to two of Benny's Camps in Germany, and he wanted to organize one in his hometown. He lives in a really small town called Rheinsberg. And they have a music academy there, and they, during this time of year, they rent out the music academy. So he was like, "I can organize a drum camp," and so that's how it all started—was just going there for a three-day drum camp. Um, I had never really wanted to take my camps outside of my facility because, mainly because I built a facility just for drum camps, and it's really hard to recreate that anywhere. But he kind of—he was an online student, so he knew what we what we did during our camps and he tried to recreate it and he just crushed it so that was the initial reason to go there was to do the camp and then I contacted Meinl and I said hey I'm coming over to Germany for this three-day camp but I can spend uh, about 10 days there total do you want to do you know some product development stuff do you want to do some clinics and then Meinl jumped on board with that great so let's talk about what it's like to watch a symbol be born yeah so one thing that I'd always been curious about was you know Minel makes no bones about it. they're very proud of the fact that they have handmade Turkish symbols and they they really do. They have their own um, factory in Turkey, you know their own smiths, their master smiths there. but what I never knew was, okay, so you know, and then a lot of their their symbols their machine made symbols are all made in Germany at the Minel factory. My thought, my question was always: so, how much of this is actually done in Turkey? How much is done at Meinl? So I was, I, I I thought that the Byzance line was completely done in Turkey, and then it literally just got laser engraved or its logo stamped on it in Germany. And so Norbert, who's my A and R for Meinl Germany or Meinl Europe, said, "Do you want to see what happens to the transition ride from the day it gets delivered from Turkey to us? Do you want to see what happens from that point?" All the way until it's ready for a store, and I said, "Yeah, that'd be great." And he said, "Okay, we've never let anybody videotape the process this symbol goes through, like a real factory tour where you just stay on the symbol the whole time." So I said, "Yeah." So we, I, I brought my cameras with me and everything, and literally there was a stack of raw symbols that had just gotten delivered from Turkey, and so in Turkey that's where they get their shape. That's they get hand hammered there, and they really come from just a flat disc and turn into what we think of as a symbol but they're very raw um and the the transition ride my signature ride goes through a lot of different things so uh it started there we picked it up and the first thing we did was we took it over to the guy that does the hand lathing and i didn't know the lathing was done by hand and so he puts it on this machine it starts spinning a billion miles an hour or kilometers per hour and then and then he just kind of moves the lathing blade into place and starts shaving off layers of the symbol. And every time he does a pass of the lathing, he weighs the symbol to see if it's the correct transition ride weight. Um, but it's all by hand. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane to watch this guy do this. And he's shaving off metal based off the pressure that he feels in his hand. And I was like, dude, what if you mess up? Like, what if you take off too much? Now, what is it? A transition crash? Like, I don't know how... Do you get fired? We're here with cameras. The guy was like, you know, and it was, I mean, have you ever seen somebody lay the symbol before? I have not. And I'm fascinated by the idea of it. And how do you be consistent at it? I was so confused. And it made me respect the process so much because I watched him, you know, we're only going to show the video of one, but I watched him do like five in a row. And I would say, okay, so he starts the lathing blade at the bell and he goes all the way out to the edge. And it's spinning really fast, and he's shaving off metal the whole time, which gives the symbol more wash. Obviously, it's making it lighter and thinner. I would say on each transition ride, and I would assume this is the same for any of the Byzant series that are lathes on the bottom, he probably did 10 passes. So, literally 10 passes of the lathe, then weigh it, then do it again and again and again, like 10 times um, until it was perfect. And it was just unbelievable. Uh, and by the end, I mean, he was barely touching the lathing blade to the symbol. It was shaving off maybe grams, and he still knew exactly what he was doing. And it was just really cool to watch. So then they take it from there to the polishing um, kind of area where. It gets buffed on the top and the bottom, and they're introducing polish. And a lot of people don't know that when you shine up a cymbal, it actually darkens the sound of the cymbal. You you think brilliant cymbals are gonna be brighter because of the way they look. They're actually a little bit darker because you're adding material. You're adding polish to the cymbal, which is darkening the tone. It's bringing the pitch down a little bit. So they polished the bottom and the top, and then what was really cool is they take it over, I think we can talk about this, to this top secret bath. That it's a machine that only Minel has, and they built it. Um, the The main guy that works at the Minel factory, he built it with the company, and it's you put the symbol like in a bath, literally, and it just gets nailed with massively high pitched frequencies, and it and it vibrates all of the polish out of the lathing grooves, so that it's really cool, so that the pitch doesn't get changed from the polish, um, and and it goes through that bath like two or three times. And then from there they take it over to the laser engraving and it gets the laser engraving, which I, I really like laser engraving because that way if you do clean your symbols, you never have to worry about the logo coming off. Um, yeah, and then and then they play it to make sure it is the transition ride or, or whatever they're working on. And then they put it in a stack um, and you have to wear your minor gloves while you're touching it so that you don't get any fingerprints on it and then it's ready to ship. None. Yeah. N- So, yeah, as far as what affects the sound, the main thing that happens in Germany is the lathing process. But I was blown away because I thought that was a machine process. I had no idea a human did it. When it was over, I had so much more respect for that entire line, and I would assume that that process is very similar at Zildjian, Peisty and and Sabian. So it just gave me a new respect for Zildjian, Karope, Sabian, Artisan, Peisty Signature Series, like really, really top-end symbols. I was like, God, this thing went through so many steps to become something that you could hit as hard as you want with a stick. Uh, I think just people should respect top end gear a little bit more after i saw that and i and, and luckily we'll have a video that'll show all of it and i don't want people to think like oh this is a minor thing there are some things that we're going to show that are very specific to minor but i would assume that zildjian has things that are specific to zildjian and, and sabian and peisty but i want them to see look man it's not like it, they just put a chunk of metal in a machine and it comes out as a 400 hundred dollar symbol you know there's a reason this cost is so high and it's not the material it's how many human beings had to work on it to make it possible
1: it's i mean that brings up the idea of i can't stand drummers who get are proud of breaking gear oh. like that just drives me nuts like you I mean yeah it kind of feels good to break a stick every once in a while right. but when you're cracking cymbals man yeah. that's like a that's a delicate instrument you should you shouldn't be trying to break that stuff
0: and i think to those people that cuz you know in my rock days it it was part of the show was to hit as hard as possible but you have to recognize the fact that okay then why do that with signature series you know i was a Paiste drummer at the time why do that with signature series why don't i have them send me the alphas you're hitting them so hard that you're not making any real tone come out of the instrument anyways and so it's like you know you can do it with alphas you can do it with roods or Zildjian ZBTs or Sabian XS20s. You don't have to do it with the handmade stuff. You know, you should really respect it. Cause it's like I said, I mean, just watching how many humans had to touch this symbol, and not one of them, even the laser engraver who's literally working a computer, not one of them looked bored or relaxed. They were so intense about making sure this was perfect, you know? Um, it was really cool. Did, did you get to compare them? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's like sixty of them there, and I was like hitting them all. And yeah, we we uh, I think at the end of the video, we put five of them on a stand, and because they're handmade, they are different, and I love that. That was a big part of me wanting to become a minor artist, was knowing that if I played Benny Greb's Crash, him and I weren't playing the same Crash. We were playing a Crash that had similar characteristics, but I had mine, he had his. And so, yeah, so I got to play them, and they were all in line with what I had told Minel two years ago, what the transition ride should be and, and the prototype that I eventually approved. But they all had their own characteristics. And because they're, you know, not lathed on the top, they still all look completely different. I mean it's raw metal that just has some polish on it. But really cool, man. Really cool stuff. Did you take your own symbols with you or are you using stuff that was supplied? No, I took uh yeah, I, I really be, once again back to the handmade stuff, and I would assume this would be the same with any of the Turkish stuff. I really like to travel with my cymbals even if the store says oh no no we have everything you play it's like yeah but you don't have mine and these are handmade so I like mine I'm very comfortable with them but um you know Norbert said hey we have a whole factory of your cymbals whatever you want so we'll be fine so no I used uh they picked out cymbals for me and then I used uh instead of using the normal hi-hats that I use which are the 14 inch extra dries I switched to the 15 inch dual hats that we should uh, maybe we'll do a gear review on in the future because they're really, really cool. Cool. And then you went out and played some drums for people. So, how was was the clinic world in Germany? It was really cool. You know, I mean, it was, I did three clinics uh, besides the camp. So, I did Munich, then Gießen, which is a really small town, and then Berlin. So, it was like getting to go from San Francisco to Old Town Sacramento to Manhattan um so I got to really experience some different types of um situations and it it was really cool I mean the people that were so appreciative you know they're not used to getting a ton of American drum clinic artists there and so so yeah so the clinics were fantastic and the Geason one was really special um Annika uh I think Niles, or do you know how to say her last name? Nils. I'm not going to butcher it. Sorry. Yeah, I'll just—I already butchered it three times. But anyways, uh, if you haven't seen Annika yet, she's a monster. But she came out to the one in Geesin, so that one was really special because I got to spend some time with her. And then the people there—it's a small town, so they were so so appreciative of the clinic. So, as fellow minor artist, had you not met her before? No, I'd never met her. Um, she also plays Aquarian too, so we have two endorsements in common. Um, and I last year, it looked like she was going to be in California at the same time as one of my um, ladies' drum camps or my all-female drum camps. And so I was hoping to get her in just to for a day to talk to the the female drummers about what it's like to be a professional musician as a, or a professional drummer as a female. She's also a songwriter. And just, I really look up to Annika a lot, not only for her drumming, but how she handles herself as a professional. And I think that you know men and women can learn a lot from her and so um but it, it ended up not working out timing wise with my camps and so this was my first time meeting her all
1: right so switch it into uh talk a little bit about gear i'm actually curious if you've had experience with this kit i've got to review the dw cherry gum kit and this kit is is designed to sound like a gretch kit uh, and in the review i even say that this this Kit reminded me of Tony Williams Gretsch kit. Like as soon as I hit it, I'm like this this drum set sounds like Tony Williams, um, and I guess the gum is the the element that would make it gretsch like. But cherry was unusual, and I think cherry is a wood that we've we've as yet to really come, you know, to, for people to really become aware how great it sounds. It's like a it's a, a weird mix of focused birch like tone, but also big and warm mapley kind of vibe. Every every cherry drum I've played, I've been like, wow, I really like that. Didn't, Ron Donet sent me a a cherry George Waite snare drum. He sent me three: a walnut, a cherry, and a birch. And in a blind test, it was like the cherry was clearly the one that I personally preferred. Yeah, it's a really it's a and it's it's a wood I think everyone should investigate a little bit more. But this kit in particular, it was like, okay, this sounds like an old gretch kit without the funky hardware or whatever beautiful kit i mean i'm I'm really kind of curious to see how it all shakes down with what they're going to do with the jazz series now that gretch is part of that corporate entity because this is like this is, is a gretch kit and
0: you know what though i mean in in all honesty i think there's just a lot of people that that no matter what they're just dw through and through and even if they want that gretch sound they just wish the dw made it for them um because they have that brand loyalty, which I, I think is cool, you know. And, and when I think about when I have the same thing happen when people ask me about Gretsch, they say like, "Man, I love Gretsch, but I kind of want more of a DW focused sound." Um, then I say, "Okay, well then you should get the Renown. That's the closest thing they have. That's going to work for rock, and you know, it's got that focused sound." So I think it's it's cool. But I, I mean, I am curious as well. I know the reason why that jazz series came into being, and it's because at the time. You know, DW had no clue that this future thing was going to happen between them and Gretsch. And they're huge fans of the Gretsch sound. And they are, I was a DW artist for 14 years. i It'd be really hard to find anyone that cares as much about drums as DW does. It doesn't matter whether you're a fan or not, but they care so much. And I'm, I'm sure they thought, you know what, we love the Gretsch sound so much. Let's add it to our lineup with the Jazz Series. So I think they did a really cool thing, but I would love to hear it with the Cherry. It was it was
1: a gorgeous kit, and it's it sounded i mean it you put on seven steps of heaven and and that's the sound you know and it makes you play with that intensity too like i don't know if it's dw or if it's this shell recipe i'm not sure but it makes you play more intense you have to play into the drum a little bit more it's not gonna it's not like an old slingerland or an old ludwig where it kind of opens up and you can play off the head it kind of demands that you kind of play through the drum a little bit
0: which is the way tony played and then did you keep the stock heads on it for your sound test yeah
1: yeah it was cool. coated ambassador top and bottom nice front and back the bass drum had a pillow in it for some reason i guess they just do that for, with everything right as an option it, but it sounded great with it in there it was it didn't have enough sustain for me but a gorgeous kit i'm sure
0: you've got people salivating enough so let's take a listen to it guys, well it's time to get to our pick of the week, and this is where Mike and I both give you uh, a slight recommendation of something you should check out. It could be gear, it could be videos, it could be audio. Uh, My pick of the week this time is something a little, well, I guess the pick is normal, but the reason why is totally different. So my pick of the week is Vader's new, uh, they're, they're they're like a dampening device, and they're called BuzzKills. And they work just like moon gels on your drums. That's not why I'm recommending them. I found out that they are amazing to put one of them under each leg of your tripod near your drum set if your tripod is shaking. And they absorb the shake so much. It was killing me that my side camera would always bounce every time I hit the bass drum because I'm on kind of like a homemade stage. And I put one buzzkill. they the, they have two sizes. So I put one of the bigger ones under each leg of the tripod and the whole tripod's just kind of wiggling back and forth a little bit like it's sitting on jello and it didn't it doesn't bounce at all on the footage. So if you want to kind of get your footage a little more stable, uh, I'm sure it would work just fine with moon gels, but I've only tried it with the Vader buzzkills. So that's that's my pick of the week. Cost you three dollars or four dollars, I don't know how much they are, but probably four or five bucks to keep your tripod dead sturdy. Well, my pick is a is a
1: drum accessory. It used to be called the bass drum lift or the Dixon bass drum lift. Now it's just rebranded called the lift to not be confused with the drum company Dixon. It's made by a guy named Artie Dixon, D-I-X-S-O-N. Uh, um. But it's a, just a plastic little riser that you hook your pedal to, and your bass drum sits on it. There's no there's no clamps. There's no mounting hardware. It has a little bit of foam rubber, and the, the sh- it, it sits between the like it it kind of wraps around the hoop. So what it does is just lifts the bass drum off the ground a couple inches and you would be completely amazed the difference that that makes to get the the drum off the floor. And I use it on in the studio. It's amazing because I can swap out bass drums in seconds. I don't have to take the pedal off. I just just grab
0: the drum and it's gone. And I'm assuming just from the way you described it it's probably not that expensive, right?
1: I don't think so. I think it might be like 40 bucks. No, that's, like that,
0: but I mean, for people that own an 18 inch bass drum and have you know always struggled either to hit the bass drum completely off center with the beater or to have the beater so low that they can't get the action they want, that sounds like an awesome solution you know? yeah, and you can use it with twenty twos and twenty fours as well because it doesn't
1: uh, it comes with different different thickness of of foam
0: so you're saying even just lifting say a twenty or twenty two off of the ground actually changes the sound of the bass drum as well huge i mean there's so much so much low end that gets lost when that shell was touching the ground you
1: wouldn't believe it though the, the one thing to be concerned was if, if you mount your toms on the bass drum and you only use one rack tom it it could pull it off balance but i don't i don't do that very often it's usually either the rack toms in a snare basket or it's on uh simple stands it and i was able to use a 16
0: inch bass drum on a gig Nice. All right, everybody. Well, that's episode four. Hopefully, you guys will get a chance to go over to iTunes and just give us a nice little five-star rating and write a little review about this because that is what allows this podcast to get to more and more people. Uh, Mike and I want to do this as long as we can for you Um, and we have amazing support from everyone at Modern Drummer that's making this all possible for us so just head over to iTunes give us a quick rating and say something nice and we would really appreciate that Mr. Dawson I will uh, see you again in another week my friend have a good one